Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. Not to get all political on here, Tap Lines listener, but historically speaking, black people haven't exactly been welcomed into the halls of power in the American beer industry. Don't get me wrong, black people have brewed beer in these United States since at least George Washington's era, and globally since at least forever. But the business of brewing, especially in its upper echelons and especially, especially in its ownership structures, has been the purview of white people, white men really, practically since it became a business, with notably few exceptions. There are a dozen well-documented reasons for that, many of which stem not from any endemic characteristics of beer or brewing, but from the systemic racism that's been baked into this country's laws and institutions. So it's no surprise that the craft brewing industry has mostly reflected the broader beer business's racial demographics regarding executive and ownership makeup. Frankly, craft beer may have been even whiter than the industry writ large because by the 80s, macro brewers were heeding internal and external calls to diversify their workforces and executive course. In any case, the situation mostly stands to this very day. Despite industry and corporate efforts in recent years, less than 1% of America's 10,000-ish craft breweries are under black ownership, a stat all the more sobering given black people represent around 13% of the overall population. What I'm trying to say is the National Black Brewers Association has its work cut out for it. Formed in late 2022 and debuted publicly for the first time at the 2023 Craft Brewers Conference in Nashville, Tennessee, the NB2A is a nonprofit trade association of black brewing professionals that have tasked themselves with promoting African Americans in the brewing industry at all levels of production, especially ownership and brewmaster. This week, Kevin Asato, a beverage industry vet and the NB2A's first executive director, joins Taplines to talk about the organization's historic formation, the challenges it and its constituents face, and how they're planning to tackle them. It's Kevin Asato, it's the National Black Brewers Association, it's building the beer business's first black business league, and it's all right here right now on Vine Pairs Taplines. The forces of technology conspired against us, but we were, they were no match for us. We overpowered them. <laughs> I'm saying we, that's two people. Of course, I'm Dave Infante because you're listening to Taplines. I'm joined today in the Taplines virtual studio by Kevin Asado of the National Black Brewers Association. Kevin, welcome to the show at long last. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate the invite and really appreciate being here. Thank you so much. Listeners, uh, you'll be glad to know that we prevailed in a battle of uh, technological anguish. Uh, Kevin was very patient. He uh, didn't once try to cut and run because he was determined to join us today on Tap Lines <laughs> and talk about talk about some really important stuff. But before before we get into that, Kevin, uh, where are you joining? Uh, where are you joining us from today? I am in sunny Southern California, right in Los Angeles here. You know, so it may be October. It's not even October anymore. It's November. My goodness, there. And we still have sun <laughs> out, and it's still shorts and t-shirts weather out here. Not to brag. <laughs> Enjoy that while you can. On the uh, no on the over here in Taplines HQ in Richmond, Virginia, we had our first thirty degree morning uh, this morning. We had some frost on the windows. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, the seasons change. 
mostly everywhere, but not in Southern California. I'm glad to hear you're enjoying yourself uh, out that way. Listeners, I'm sure in the upper Midwest, uh, in the Mountain West, are jealous of both of us because they're experiencing <laughs> a cold spell and maybe some some snow already uh, this season. Mm. But we're not here to talk about the weather. We got more important shit to discuss. <laughs> Kevin, <laughs> Kevin, for those uh, for those who are not uh, up on the times in the American beer business and may have uh, missed you know the headlines uh, as they as they hit the wire this past spring spring 2023 about the announcement of the National Black Brewers Association um, they may not be familiar with the organization they may not be familiar with you personally let's start with you personally you're a you're a three decade veteran of the uh, gosh the American beverage industry writ large yeah, yes. I, I suppose <laughs> you've worked a lot of you've worked a lot of angles or you've worked a lot of roles uh, in the, in the beverage world, how did you come to find yourself with the National Black Brewers Association? Give listeners a little, little background on, on who you are and how you got here. That I think I can do, you know, so I got to be honest with you. It was at a really young age where, you know, I'm exposed to adult beverage, not because I'm drinking it just simply Mm. because from a familial standpoint, you know, I was raised in a traditional Japanese and black excuse me, Japanese and Mexican households. That's the crazy thing is. We'll unpack that one a little bit later there. But suffice it to say, every family member of ours loves social gatherings, right? Mm. And it was always a big group, whether it's a birthday, Father's Day, Christmas, you name it. There was always uh, a congregation of tons of people, right? We're from big families. So we have a ton of people coming in, people making food, and there was always beer, wine. And typically that was about it there. Not a whole lot of, you know, spirits and whatnot there. But suffice it to say that my early interactions with, you know, adult beverage were at family gatherings. And it was jovial. It was fun. There was good music. There was dancing. There was good times. And so I just naturally equated, you know, family gatherings, happiness, and joy with this is how you bring it to life. You bring, you know, everybody's cooking. You got a cold beer. Grandma's got her wine. Mom's got her, her wine. And so from that, you know, when I started getting a little bit older and went to college, I, you know, living on my own, had to answer a job board, you know, posting because I had to pay for school. They mm-hmm. just said, hey, you know, come work at a warehouse. Great. So it happened to be the Anheuser-Busch warehouse in Silmar, California. And this was what they called the Anheuser-Busch WOD. And the short order of the job was restocking coolers. You know, they would work around my school schedule to literally restock coolers in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. And th- these were high volume, you know, Hispanic accounts there. And my job was literally drive around and restock those coolers, rebuild displays and whatnot. And mind you, that touch point, when I told my my dad and I told my family, hey, I'm working for Budweiser, they ended up going, this yeah, is yeah. awesome. This is great. Yeah. And, you know, so here I'm getting this additional validation. I'm already having fun doing it, right? It's physical. I'm out in the sun throwing cases. And then, you know, for the most part, Darn near everybody was pretty comfortable with saying, hey, hey, bud guy. Hey, yo. And so yeah, yeah. I'm getting, you know, that fun, welcoming, you know, response no matter what location I went to. It was at that point when I legitimately said, okay, well, I'm really enjoying this lifestyle, you know, in terms of what adult beverage means to my family, really enjoying what it means from a workload. Then they, Anna's Bush comes back and says, hey, how about we pay for your education? We'll pay for your college. Just come work with us full time. So I'm going to school full time, working full time. And at this point, I'm going, well, life is pretty darn good if you're going to pay for my schooling. <laughs> and 
fast forward to the piece where they're like, hey, look, you know, when you graduate college, you know, you'll have an opportunity to work with us. And at this point, you know, right around this time, I think the World Cup was in play. And they're saying, hey, look, we need some guys to help, you know, be a draft technician and work on draft lines and set up this stuff. And mind you, I'm still not drinking because, you know, I'm still underage at this point. But suffice it to say. You're still underage? Well, I'm 19 at that point. Yeah, when I started yeah. Working wow. wow. Bush. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mind you, I'm just, you know, restocking cases and building displays. Sure. Sure. And so, you know, I get to the point where I'm like, my God, I'm able to go to these great parties put on by Anheuser-Busch. I'm getting to go to these events where, you know, granted, I can't participate in, but I can see the event, right? There's concerts, there's sporting events. And so I'm realizing this is a really enjoyable space. And then the crazy thing is I'm pulling in as I'm hearing the marketing plans and seeing, you know, the financials through our sales managers and whatnot. I I was a business major, right? You know, Mm, so mm. I'm taking some of these real world applications and seeing, oh, wow, I actually talked about this in school and some of the lessons. So the crazy thing is, long story short, it pulled it all together. And it was at that early age, probably 21, 22, where I was realizing, yeah, this feels really good. You know, yeah. from the familial validation, from the, you know, the, the socialization elements, the practical application of taking book learnings and applying it to real life learnings. And so it just fueled my energies to want to, you know, realize and nail down at an early age that I don't want to be locked in an office. I like socializing. I like selling. I like the atmosphere that this brings. It's fast paced. Um, and then it just progressed my career, you know, having worked with Miller Brewing shortly after that and Bochamp Distributing out of Compton, California. And then my thirst for kind of learning more, you know, I had an opportunity to go work for Pepsi Cola to get some people management skills. Mm. Pepsi Cola was a nice change, but at the end of the day, a box is a box is a box is kind of what my thought process was. <laughs> and I'm going, wow. Things move a lot faster. There's a lot more cases being sold on this space than on the yeah, beer yeah, space. Yeah, yeah. And cool as it was, you I mean Pepsi had their you know sports venues. Pepsi had their. So I'm like, this is still really a lot of fun. Did they have the Super Bowl halftime show when you were there? Or no. No. Well, if they did, they got I mean, that, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This guy didn't get tickets to that stuff. <laughs> 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 yeah, you know, so I'm starting off, you know, still, you know, very much grinding and going to accounts and learning the fundamentals of selling. But yeah, it's yeah. those foundations of working with Anheuser Busch and Miller Brewing and Pepsi Cola, where they are iconic companies for a reason, and they sure. actually have world class training capabilities to develop sales operations, you name it. So I could not have been set up with a greater level of success as I build, you know, the very foundation of selling build yeah. the very foundation of marketing. I mean, these are great brands that, uh, you know, are iconic in for a reason. And so as I'm getting this understanding, I took those learnings and said, you know something, this is right around 2000, I think it was, where the bottled water business was just going bananas, right? Just, mm, it mm. was new news. I took that opportunity to try something new and work with a startup company and moved out to Dallas. And, whew, you know, when that was my first bit of thirst for that entrepreneurial spirit, um, where, you know, you're building something from ground zero and you're wearing multiple hats, you're drawing on all your experiences, but still there's about equal amount of experience that you have zero exposure to historically. Um, and so I'm working for a company called Parmalot and starting Esker Water. Sadly, that was short lived. That was about, uh, just under a year and a half, but it didn't satisfy my thirst for trying something new and challenging myself. And so check this out, Dave, this is where this guy went completely off the reservation. I Tell me. tried something so vastly different um, 
the opportunity came to me to work for Aramark and specifically Aramark Correctional Services. Correctional Services is the division that feeds prisoners. Sure. So it is myself with a couple of other civilian personnel working alongside inmate laborers to produce meals three times a day for the entire population, 365 days a year. You know, so now I go from living, you know, the life, going to concerts and sporting events and, hey, bud guy, to literally having to get my background checked and going into being in a jail or prison three to five days a week. Wow. Um, so now we're dealing with a very different side of society, right? In which, sure. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, I'm learning how jailhouse hooch is made. So they, <laughs> while there's no Budweiser being sold there, make no mistake, there is some version of mind-altering juice that is being created <laughs> in those halls there. And yeah, I yeah. won't say where all that stuff is taking place, but it's just, a, you know, it just happens there. Long story short, after four years in that space, you know, between California, Oregon, and Washington, I realized, okay, let me get back to my sweet spot. Let me get back to where I know I'm happiest there. And I've made Return to the beverage that, industry. <laughs> yes, you <laughs> nailed it. Absolutely nailed it there. And so, um, you know, I get back into beverage there. I'm working with Dr. Pepper. And then I realized that, man, okay, I'm back in the non-alcoholic space, but my real love is adult beverage. And at this point, I had not spent any time in the spirit side of the space, right? I'd been with, you know, non-alcoholic and CSDs. I'd been with beer, but I had not been with spirits yet. So I took this opportunity after Dr. Pepper to go uh, with Bacardi. And after a few years there working in California, I was moved to their headquarter offices in Miami. And that's what really got me kind of, you know, the the other layer of education there. And while I've had a very strong, robust exposure to the sales and distribution side of things across multiple channels, multiple states, Mm. Now it kind of put me behind the curtain, behind how the sausage is made, right? Working with the brand teams, the customer insights, the software insights. Why is it that they're doing what they're doing? And I couldn't have found a better role because my role at that time was to kind of inject real level, street level impact into the brand plans, right? So yes, this sounds like a great idea on paper, but there will be no chance of this working downstream because here are the reasons why, whether it be legal reasons or just your executional blockages there. So really, really great foundation uh, learning across multiple brands. And really, like I said, the foundational stuff of how, why brands do what they do from an innovation standpoint, how they reach certain shoppers, how they reach certain markets, certain channels, really, really good capstone. Wow. Long story short, when I moved to Miami, we had seven kids. Seven <laughs> kids? <laughs> what? We had we had seven kids. So yeah, what can I say? I like my wife. How so. old were you? <laughs> you weren't that old uh, at that point. God, like, how old was I at this point there? I would, this was back in 2016, so seven years ago. So what is I, 46-ish, right around Good there? Good for you. My goodness. <laughs> okay, so you got a big family. You got a the, already a very distinguished career in the, in the beverage industry, both non-alc and alcoholic. You took a detour into the American uh, correctional facility space, but then you came back. You came back to to alcohol. Uh, where does uh, National Black Brewers Association come? You know, intersect with the Kevin Asado story. So as we look at that piece, as I was telling you, we went out with seven kids and giving my sons the birds and the bees story. That hey, you know, you know, teenage sons, you know, be smart. Sure. Um, dad comes out and hey, we have baby number eight. You know, I was a nice surprise baby. <laughs> oh my Long <God>. story short, 
Uh, baby number eight is born with Down syndrome and some medical challenges there. And some of the medical care she needed was back in California. Mm. And so it pulled me back into California and I you know, took a role with RNDC at the time. It was Young's Market prior to transitioning to RNDC. And this is where I get exposed to Fawn Weaver and Uncle Nearest. And so as I'm working with Uncle, you know, Uncle Nearest as a portfolio, and I'm really liking what's happening, and I'm developing the, the Black Leadership Advisory Council for RNDC, you know, I'm really finding that I'm enjoying giving back to the community that looks like me. But it's also raising the very clear awareness that there's not a whole lot of people that do look like me. Right, right. And I, I'm going down that my history, I'm going, my goodness, whether it be beer, whether it be soda, whether it be anything else in the adult beverage space, there just aren't a lot of people that look like me. At that time, Fawn Weaver asked me to join her board, board of directors for the, her venture fund, which was in support of minority-owned businesses mm-hmm. uh, coming to market. And it was through that relationship, through a couple other people, that she connected. Um, you know, she had known Kevin Johnson. Kevin Johnson is the owner of Oak Park Brewery. And little did I know, back in the December of 2022, after owning Oak Park Brewery in Sacramento, he was, you know pretty familiar with the fact that there should be an association or basically surprised that there wasn't an audience that or an association that could help black brewers, especially as mm. he's interacting with black brewers, recognizing, man, there seems to be a tremendous disparity. And he had had the prior you know, performance of dealing with associations. I think it was the, the black mayors of the United States or black mayors of the U.S. Um, building that association. And he took that same learning and saying, hey, look, there should be an association for black brewers in the black community to help, right? We're hearing the same solid, you know, same issues. So as he's bringing this concept to life, he is reaching out to some of his contacts and relationships. And that's how Kevin and I got connected. And he's mm-hmm. like, hey, your background, your desire and what you want to get accomplished, I'd love for you to take on the role. And I interviewed with the team and I got to be honest with you, I was coming back home to beer Coming back to supporting an or, you know, a group of people that look like myself could not have been a better scenario. So very long-winded, but suffice to say, you've got Kevin's entire story right there and how we came together here. Fantastic. I love it. So in December 2022, the organization, National Black Brewers Association, actually is, is officially formed. Most, I think most listeners or most uh, observers of the beer industry will only uh, hear about it in... Um, I guess in uh, that would have been May of 2023, which is when uh, you kind of have your coming out party to the world, so to speak. You have your de- your debut as an organization that happens in Nashville uh, during the the yeah. Craft Brewers Conference of 2023. Um, Kevin, tell us a little bit about um, you know as you know between December and and May what you guys are doing on the team. Tell us a little bit about the team and and, and what the work is, what the groundwork uh, is or the legwork is that you're doing to lay the foundation for what would become the National Black Brewers Association. So from December, you know, the start of that, that was just the starting of the organization, right? Like putting the articles of incorporation in place, so starting the basic yep. framework to, to develop the business. Yep. The next bit of work was actually, let's build the board of directors out. You know, that, that's got to be the key element of, you know, one, providing legitimacy to this organization, right? It has mm-hmm. to be a group of credible people that this community can say, yes, I, I, I know Garrett Oliver and I, yes, he's on board. And Dr. J, yes, absolutely. She's on board. Got it. And the list, you know, went on to 15 people, right? 15 very notable, dare I say, the Mount Rushmore of, you know, the black brewing community, you know, and, you know, I mentioned uh, Garrett and Dr. J and then there's Marcus Bass and Celeste, 
that was our our introductory officers, right? Those were the four members that were our officers. And then just the additional board members downstream, you know, were predominantly brewers, but a few, you know, partners at large, you know, such as Aaron Jose, who developed the one pint at a time film mm-hmm. or Ale mm-hmm. Sharpton. Um, and of course, you know, Dr. J, who is a home brewer, but, you know, still considered at large. Sure. Um, so it was the building and bringing together this leadership. And then from there is, you know, the developing of the bylaws, you know, who is it and how is it that they're going to support the black brewing community and really defining their vision and the mission. So that was all the work leading up to, you know, that May timeframe. And so developing that infrastructure, you know, from that development there and recognizing, okay, we need somebody to lead the day-to-day activity. And that was where they selected, you know, the executive director in which, you know, I was, you know, I was selected at that time. And that was the coming out party on May 7th, you know, at CBC in Nashville. So yeah, it was a, a lot of work on just standing up the organization. But I think the key piece and the big takeaway, uh, Dave, is that Kevin Johnson set the vision and the culture that this isn't just going to be uh, a ho-hum group of guys and girls coming together. This was going to be a professional organization being the most trusted and most respected organization and most effective organization and, you know, bypass anything that may have been considered, you know, negative for a black community group, meaning it was going to be done at the highest level where black excellence is going to be the mantra, right? Mm. Everything we do is going to be done professionally, done properly on time, you name it. Um, and, you know, when Kevin set that goal out, he, he walked the walk. You know, he held the board members accountable. He told the board members from the get-go, he's like, this is not just a, a role that you take in title. You will be expected to do your part and be an active member there. And he's held that team accountable and set the culture. And then now that we've been through a few of these months together, it's definitely permeated the organization. And that's the culture there that's in place. They're now doing everything at a very high level. Right on. When you were mm-hmm. when you were putting it together, when you and the and the other board members were putting it together, you become you know you get selected as the executive director. Um, were there other black uh, like trade groups or business leagues or organizations that you were looking to, whether that was in beverage or just in other industrial sectors that you were modeling this off? Like, were you starting from first principles? Were there you know uh, tell me like a little bit about how you guys came to the structure that you wanted and the, you know, the framework for the bylaws that you wanted. And even as basic as, Hey, what's the mix of brewers to at large member, you know, like tell us a little bit about where the inspiration lie or or what else you were seeing both in the beverage sector and beyond uh, that, that, you know, you either decided you wanted to be like that, or maybe you wanted to do a little different than that. What, What did the landscape look like? You know, admittedly, I'm I'm looking back in time, right? Because I wasn't an active participant of the formation of this piece. So, but mm-hmm. as I look mm-hmm. back in time and have that conversation with Kevin and the board members, you know, one of the key things that they recognize is that there wasn't an organization, you know, in the adult beverage space solely focused on the black community. Mm-hmm. There are some community groups, you know. So I don't want to you know discount the some of the efforts there, but even groups like Pronghorn, which is a very prominent player in the adult beverage space, excuse me, in the spirit space about facilitating black ownership of brands, Right, it still was not an association. And their common goals is the other differentiator. This particular association was going to be geared towards improving ownership of black owned breweries. The formation or the foundation of, of why that became was because, you know, of approximately the 10,000 craft breweries that are in the U.S., Less than one half of 1% 
are actually black owned. A vanishingly small fraction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, it, it, it's it's you know horrifying. And no matter what benchmark or milestone you used to compare that to, you look at the drinking, the adult beverage drinking population, 8% of them are black. Mm-hmm. If you look at the total demographics of the US, you know, there's approximately 13% you know, African-Americans in the United yep. States. Whatever metric you use to benchmark it, you can all, we can all agree that it's not the business ownership side of the brewing community is woefully underrepresented. Sure. It's just statistically, it's just factually under-indexed, right? That's the the term uh, statisticians use, right? Like if it were to be indexed accurately to the national population, you would see somewhere between 12 and 13%. If it were indexed to the black drinking population, you'd see somewhere around 8%, one half of 1%. Obviously just, I mean, you know, it's just not, uh, it's not commensurate with uh, either of those two relevant populations. And so that is the the motivation for why this organization, you know, that is the the mission to improve that ownership level, you know, to something that's far greater than what it is today. Mm. Um, we're not putting a hard timeline or a defined milestone on what that looks like, whether it's 8%, 13% or anything, quite frankly, different than those two other benchmarks. But it's the goal is to something better than that. And we'll define that probably a little bit with greater detail next year. Sure. Um, where, you know, we're going to be looking at getting at. And in terms of the bylaws, look, I mean, you know, I said it earlier, Kevin was going to set the culture and tone that this is a very legit organization, that this isn't just done in name. And I think a lot of the foundational elements were created from his work on the political function as, you know, the black mayors of the uh, of the United States. That council and their bylaws, that definitely played a role in influencing how the structure of this organization was going to be set up. I mean, I'll be the first one to tell you the rigor that has been instituted in terms of board meetings and do you second this motion? I mean, who's initiating it? Robert's rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. it is it is rigid. But the beautiful thing is structurally it's rigid. But I love the fact that through it all, culturally, we're allowed to be as culturally relevant as we want to be. You know, mm. so there is, you know, absence of those those rules and processes which are absolutely necessary from business standpoint and accountability standpoint. I love the fact that the tagline is, hey, we're bringing culture to the cup. And so Mm. if that means that we're showing up in Jordan's jeans and doing how we do, great. That is exactly it. And we're not diminishing any of that stuff there. Um, So it's been a healthy and beautiful mix of, you know, proper structure and culture coming together. So we talked about the bylaws. We've talked about, you know, how the organization came to be. We've talked about, you know, sort of from a abstract or high level perspective, what you're hoping to accomplish. What are some of the like actual, give us like some of the concrete, you know, actions that you guys are taking or the initiatives that you guys are putting out in the world. What are you guys, uh, not to be disrespectful, what are you doing with the MB2A <laughs> right now? <laughs> yeah, you know, that's a totally fair question there. And I'd say, well, we're doing a ton, you know, doing an absolute <laughs> ton. There's two particular initiatives that I think are most relevant and actually getting the most visibility. So I'll just keep mm. us, you know, focus on those two. Um, the first is Black is Beautiful. And you're probably saying, wow, what is that? Some of you may have heard of it there because it's been around since 2021. But this is an initiative that was started on the uh, on the heels of the George Floyd murders in which Marcus mm-hmm. Baskerville said, you know something, I've got to do something about this thing. And through his own community and his own way, he initiated what's called, you know, a collaboration brew in which he mm-hmm. created a stout recipe. And he just sent this out to 
everyone that, you know, that you know, in the brewing community that he knew and says, hey, brew this collaboration beer and, you know, have, you know, a portion of proceeds of your, this brew come back and donate to your charity, your local charity that you know, supports a, a, a local social injustice. And that became so successful that, you know, it reached out to, there were 1,601 breweries that participated in it. Secondly, the amount of donations that came back to the various social justice charities, you know, tipped four and a half million. I mean, wow. it was so significant and successful that this is one of the things that the NB2A is doing. We're taking, we're not looking to create something that's so new, but definitely looking to support existing platforms that our members have started. So sure. the next iteration is what we're calling Volume 2, Black is Beautiful Volume 2. And you can go to blackisbeautiful.beer to learn more about it. But this year, Marcus instituted a new recipe. It's a hazy IPA. And then unlike last year, where all the proceeds went to a localized social injustice group, this year, the resources were asking everybody to donate either $1 per pint or $1 per can back to the NB2A. So the NB2A will be the recipient, but this is a natural evolution and consistent with what Marcus has intended to you know, make sure that he can do something to help close that you know, the racial inequity that exists. And this is that initiative. We've gotten so much, you know, positive press, even, you know, from national retailers like Whole Foods that have just said, absolutely, as you guys have your distribution and as you get breweries signing up, we will have a spot for you on our sales floor and on our sales shelves. So we've seen some, so, so much good, you know, positive impact at retail. And so that's our first initiative that, you know, in terms of what we're getting done, really helping, mm -hmm. you know, close mm -hmm. that gap. That's been a lot of fun. And then the second piece is celebrating National Black Brewers Day. Um, have you heard about this yet, Dave? Just don't know yet. <laughs> uh, I actually have not. Tell us about it. You're breaking some news on my podcast, Kevin. Look at us go. I mean, it actually <laughs> happened October 10th that we actually are celebrating and supporting and recognizing probably the most courageous black brewer that we've had, you know, thus far. And Ted Mack Sr. was the very first African-American that owned a brewery in the United States. He opened mm. up his doors October 10th, hence 1010. And, you know, they were opened up in 1970. Sadly, you know, throughout the political climate and through some of the very real, you know, social challenges that you know, existed in the, the early 70s, you know, he closed his doors in two years there. But the beer that he opened up or started was called uh, People's Beer. We are keeping that history alive and recognizing that what he did really helped forged away for a lot of our brewers today. And so we're mm. recognizing and reaching out to several jurisdictions, uh, whether it be city, county, or state levels, in which we're asking those respective scenes to recognize October 10th as Black Brewers Day. So far, we have 16 jurisdictions, the state of California, the state of Oklahoma, uh, the state of Louisiana have all come on board and various other cities slash counties there to recognize that. So it's been a great bit of dialogue where people are recognizing, yeah, we can support and show some love there. Just know that next year, true to form, we're doing everything bigger and better as we do this. Uh, we're actually looking for that federal designation as well. And actually, we're having that federal, and we're getting the um, National Black Caucus of State Legislators. They're going to be proposing this and taking this to the federal level there. So we're wow. having such big initiatives there. And what that does, it just gives us a real opportunity to kind of educate our legislators about black brewers and not only the financial impact, but also the employment impacts in their respective jurisdictions. So in the history and the history. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You nailed it. So Very those are cool. our two big initiatives. Black is beautiful and national black brewers day. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. 
Kevin, I want to, I think for a lot of listeners who are sort of familiar with the American craft beer landscape and are familiar with the beer industry writ large, um, they see out there, especially over the course of the past half decade or so, um, you know, corporations and trade groups uh, making efforts, you know, very public efforts to, quote, improve diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? DEI has become um, a major corporate initiative, major trade group initiative. Um, it's in the ether, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, the Brewers Association, uh, which is the, the, the craft brewing industry's largest trade group, implements a DEI uh, department or a committee um, in, in 2017 you know, good five years before uh, National Black Brewers Association comes into being. I'd love to hear, and I think our listeners would benefit from hearing how you, you know, sort of see the work that's being done, for example, at the Brewers Association with the DEI uh, work that they're doing, um, and how that sort of interacts with or how you'd like it to exist in tandem with the work that the National Black Brewers Association is doing. Um, because I think, like, it would be fruitful to sort of delineate uh, in your mind how you how you see these efforts working together or which areas they're going to be working in and um, flesh that out for us a little bit. Yeah, you know, uh, it's a great question. And, you know, I think the key thing is the Brewers Association does so much great work for the brewing community mm. as a whole. Right. Mm. And so whether it's tax legislation pursuits or just infrastructure to you know provide data insights on you know where to pursue and where the pinch point or pain points may be, all the work that they do there, you know, our membership benefit from, right? We're brewers at the foundation, right? So sure. we benefit from all that great work. There is also a beautiful complement of what we do. And to your point, as they started a DEI you know, initiative there and their projects. There's no doubt that much of what we're doing falls, you know, in complement with what they're doing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's kind of like we pick up where they leave off, sort of speak there, right? Because, you know, there's only so far that every organization can go. So this is that complementary piece that we can kind of take that agenda and advance it even further. Even though it's, you know, it doesn't seem like we should be on the same agenda. The fact is we're trying to truly accomplish the same thing, and that's draw a larger, more diverse audience into the craft brewing community. You know, they have their tactics and their reasons for doing it, but it's also consistent with why it's important for us to do it. So our efforts, even though the activities may be slightly different, they are complementary. But when you see this partnership, you know, Bob Peace leading that organization, he's been such, he's been one of the first early adopters of saying, hey, I want to support what, what's going on. You guys are 100% on board with what we're doing there. So they have taken us into the fold and really supported all of our efforts there. You know, even as something as vibrant as, you know, giving us space at the CBC, right? Their craft brewing show. And we, you know, were able to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. um, the Great American Beer Festival, carving out space on that floor for the, you know, calling it the National Black Brewers Association Pavilion, the MB2A Pavilion, where yeah, we can yeah. actually showcase and highlight some of our brewers that have historically you know, may have waffled on whether they participate or not because of the costs associated with it. Sure. You know, they've removed some of those barriers to help flourish and support that. So, look, you know, I cannot say enough about the support of the Brewers Association to help us, you know, right, and be a part of, you know, either activities that they have in place. Again, it also gives us a level of credibility. Uh, but, we, you know, there's a lot of, you know, uh, good dialogue that happens with the two of us that 
making sure that what we're trying to accomplish is in concert with what they're trying to accomplish and vice versa. So there has been good working relationships between myself and, you know, Bob Peace and, you know, both of the organizations there. They've donated a lot of resources to help us realize, you know, what we're trying to get accomplished there. So like I said, we do a lot of the same things, but we pick up where the other leaves off. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Uh, Kate Bernat, who um, is a reporter that's with Good Beer Hunting and Craft Beer and Brewing, uh, she's a friend of the, of the Tapline show. Uh, she did a, a fantastic piece when when uh, the NB2A um, first sort of has that coming out in May at the Craft Brewers uh, Conference in Nashville. And she spoke with Zach Day, who's the founder of uh, Chicago's Funky Town Brewery. Um, he had this great quote in her piece um, that said, to me, uh, the NB2A is almost equivalent to an HBCU, a historically black college or university. And I thought the the parallel was worth bringing up here because you mentioned just a moment ago the idea that um, you know black-owned breweries may not have in the past uh, been interested or able to participate in GABF and the Great American Beer Festival because of the cost. And, and one of the things that in my reporting and others who report on the beer industry or just any anyone who reports on industry in general, um, one of the reasons historically that uh, uh, that black professionals are not able to open their own businesses is because of a lack of access to capital because they're undercapitalized, right? Like they, they have harder times getting loans, et cetera, et cetera. Like these are well-documented challenges. The HBCU comparison I thought was uh, potentially fruitful or a good jumping off point because there's something similar going on there where HBCUs are uh, august historic institutions. They do important work in the community. They also tend to be undercapitalized compared to their peers in the, I guess, the broader collegiate American, the American collegiate landscape. I wanted to use that as a segue to talk a little bit about the big money challenge of the folks that you're trying to represent, the NB2A is trying to represent, uh, there is a, there's a problem of capitalization. There's a problem of who has enough money to get into this expensive business with a high barrier to entry, mm-hmm. right? Stainless steel costs a lot of money, man. Uh, uh, in light industrial square footage cost in the, in first tier and second tier cities costs a lot of money. Talk to us a little bit about how the national black brewers association and you personally maybe are, are thinking about, you know, knowledge is good. Culture is good. Network Working is good. Capital is really important to this business. Tell us how that fits in. Oh, uh, Dave, you are so right. And you definitely did your homework there. And I could see how you can draw the comparison to HBCUs being underfunded or, you know, just being differently funded there. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. The capital, you know, the access to capital is probably the underlying thread that sadly binds many of our business owners and aspirational business owners. Sure. That being one of the common obstacles there. What's some of the things that we're able to do to help knock down those barriers and those obstacles? You know, we're taking a long look at all the financial resources that are out there. Yeah. And there's a few that are starting to really bubble up as, you know, very you know strong possibilities. You know, when we look at one of the early supporters of our organization, you know, the Boston Beer Company, mm-hmm. they understand it thoroughly. You know, and Dogfish Head, you know, both Maria and Sam Claugioni, they have been so aggressive in their willingness to support and forget the willingness, they flat out are supporting. And one of the things that they identify is that, you know, 
yes, that you know we may be considering loans for this organization. I mean, they have a program called Brewing the American Dream that helps facilitate and overcome some of those challenges. So that is one avenue, right? Looking at you know these partners that are really willing to help, they have some means uh, as an organization to support. Um, there are relationships that we've been very fortunate to connect with, you know, through Kevin Johnson's relationship, you know, with some of the major financial institutions to have that dialogue about whether it be lending guidelines and lending restrictions, you know, at least that dialogue is being had. We're far from getting it to something that we can present to our membership. Mm -hmm. Uh, But financial institutions, we're having that discussion about, hey, here's some of the historical barriers and where can you lean in and partner and allow this to have, you know, uh, facilitate the lending or, you know, other financial products that can come from these, you know, traditional financial institutions. Yeah. A third avenue that we're exploring, and I've been very fortunate to do, you know, some preliminary dialogue with the uh, Lori Ajax out of the California Craft Brewers Association is this Mm. looking at perhaps, you know, government funding. You know, we were living a very real case story with, you know, with um, Crowns and Hops out of Los Angeles, you know, in which the Los Angeles County and got to show some, you know, some love to you know Supervisor Holly Mitchell. She's been a significant advocate of unlocking county funds to help facilitate whether it's either the property ownership that needs to be realized or the economic development of minority-owned businesses there. And so, going down the road of really looking at both state, county, and city level funding for economic development um, is another avenue that we're pursuing and we're seeing. And you know, this is why we are making sure that we're developing a relationship with legislators. So one, you know, one, we can introduce ourselves and the opportunity that exists. And two, we can educate them on the impact that the brewing has in their community, right? Sure. From a jobs perspective, from a revenue perspective, you know, and it, it's not surprising to hear that there are economic development funds and resources available that have yet to be tapped into. So we're being very intentional with how we connect with our legislators and perhaps you looking into those resources. Mm-hmm. And then the final piece is, you know, on a much larger scale, we're getting some early support by major beer players already. You know, as I mentioned, the Boston beer Great. company, very big supporter Diageo, you know, the, albeit the largest spirit company, but you know, the Guinness. makers of Guinness yeah, yeah. beer. Yep. And, you know, we, we are looking at some other partnerships that are just, really stepping up, you know, the National Beer Wholesalers Association, as they partner with us, you know, they continue to identify and hear our message and the dialogues continue that they may be another resource to facilitate ownership, not necessarily under their portfolio. I can't say that, you know, at this time, that's entirely Mm -hmm. too early Mm -hmm. to say, but, you know, they're seeing the importance of it. And albeit, you know, there's some residual benefit, right? It's not just because it's feeling good and does good for this community. They also recognize the importance that it serves as a great source of uh, consumer and shopper recruitment into their franchise as well. So, you know, we are absolutely exploring, you know, some three very distinct, you know, avenues of funding. Uh, Still early days to put some things down on paper in terms of what will be the most effective for us. But, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, you know, the avenue recognizing full well that this is the reason why we exist. We have to bring some of those financial and capital resources down. But I have to be truly, truly, truly transparent when I say this, Dave. You know, handing somebody a check without the financial literacy and the additional supports that go with that Mm. is a recipe for disaster. So there is no way that we would be doing any of our brewers any justice if we weren't taking a comprehensive look at their business and giving them the entire, you know, rundown of, okay, 
you need some marketing chops, you need some operational improvements, you need some product quality controls. These are elements that have to be instituted just as you know much as you know the financial needs are. The rigor around you know developing quality product and quality business practices are equally as important. Yeah, yeah. And building that institutional knowledge, I mean, historically in you know the craft brewing industry has struggled or had struggled early on with creating that institutional knowledge, right? When they first start breaking yeah. away and home brewers actually start going and trying to commercialize product in the in the 70s and 80s, right? They don't know quality control issues. They don't know which labs to send their product to. They don't know how to, you know, like run a pasteurizing, you know, operation at scale, right? These are things that yep. uh, the big guys know how to do. The little guys mm-hmm. don't. So there's like a parallel there with, it's not, you guys don't, you know, there's not a need for National Black Brewers Association constituents to learn things, you know, like reinventing the wheel, but creating that institutional right. knowledge and creating the pathways for it to get to the people who need to know it is not something that just happens overnight, right? Correct. You yeah. nailed it right there. So finding those partnerships, you know, whether it's, you know, with Diageo or whoever else, Boston Beer, you know, maybe we can have access to their labs, right? So yeah, you know, yeah. our, our localized breweries can't afford a lab of their course, own, but, course, you yeah. know, can we create that avenue that allows them to bring their product in to ensure product quality and consistency? Heck yeah, that's a significant win. And so historically, some of those resources and avenues just haven't been illuminated for our partners here. Yeah, right on. Kevin, take Mm -hmm. us back to Nashville. I want to, we've talked about the organization, about some of the challenges, some of the opportunities that National Black Brewers Association has in front of it as a, as a five, you guys are a 501c6, right? Uh, Like a trade league. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, it's this 501c6. It's unlike uh, any other sort of, uh, there are informal organizations that represent, you know, sort of black adult beverage professionals maybe, but this is the, the first one that's really set up at like a trade organization. We've talked about how it got set up what the goals are, how it interacts with some other DEI programs out there. Um, but take us back now, like zoom back in and let's go, let's go back to, to May, uh, 2023, this moment, okay. uh, this historic moment as, as you know, we, that's what we do here on tap lines. This is recent history, but it's historic, uh, nonetheless. Um, tell us about the actual sort of, you know, uh, uh, debut of the national black Rose association. How does it go? What's, what's the scene? Where are, you know, like who's there? Who's in the room? Get us there, man. <laughs> well, sadly, you're asking one man's perspective, right? And so my board was there in full, you know, full power, and they're already well familiar with the setting, right? So they've been to CBC, they have several relationships already, they know the game plan, they know the format. But from this guy's perspective, this was a very different, you know, viewpoint. Mm. As I mentioned before, this is me coming back to beer. Right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. prior to this, I had been on the distributor side, on the spirit side, you know, on the supplier side there. So it had been a minute since I've been back into this space. And I kid you not, day one, Justin Kendall from Brewbound, um, I get told that I'm going to be speaking on a panel. And this is day one on the job. <laughs> and I forget the name of the place, but it's a honky tonk right there on, you know, right on the you know, natural right the heart yeah, of yeah, natural. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And you know, I'm still taking it all in because at the time there's also a Taylor Swift concert going on. And that's so right. That's there's right. just a bunch of Swifties all over the place there. It was and a then, very listener, 
it was a very funny dynamic in Nashville that weekend. There were a bunch of like, uh, like, you know, twee girls, like teenage, yes. and, you know, early twenties and yes. sequin dresses. And then just like a bunch of like overweight brewers with beards walking around. <laughs> yes. So it's already surreal. You're getting thrown yes. into the deep end. You're speaking on a panel at a honky tonk your first day on the job. Okay. <laughs> and I got Chris Harris from Black Frog Brewery in, sure, in sure. Uh, Ohio, Toledo, Ohio. And I got Celeste Beatty from Harlem Brewing. And once again, they're iconic in their own space. They're familiar with this space already. But then there's yes. me who still haven't nailed down the messaging points. So I'm nervous. My collar is halfway up my ear. You know, and it's going live. And and Sam Claudioni is there, you know, with his Aloha shirt or his Hawaiian shirt, greeting everybody, high five yeah, yeah, everybody. Yeah. Kevin Johnson's there, and I'm like, oh, God, this is my first coming out party. We got our PR team, and I'm nervous already. Yeah, Shoot. Yeah, yeah. And I'm a hot mess. In short, <laughs> I am a hot mess. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if I could have been too bad because Justin Kendall actually invited me back to speak at Brewbound Live later this uh, this year in December at their event. So I don't know if that's a redemption or a pity effort there, or he's like, Okay, Gabby, you had enough positive things to say. Let's get you back on. (laughs) (laughs) But that intro, I've never told this to Celeste or to Chris Harris. Both of them were like, you'll be fine. In the most calming, reassuring way. And Mm. neither one of them are high energy or out of control. You know, Chris just threw the arm around his shoulder. He's like, you got this, man. Don't worry about it. You're Mm. fine. Their words were so reassuring. It just felt like I was talking to... In one case, my older brother, or you know, maybe a favorite uncle, um, you know, or a favorite aunt, you know, because here, you know, Celeste and Chris were comfortable. As I mentioned, they're comfortable with the setting. This wasn't new space for them. Right. They were comfortable with speaking the, you know, the points there, and it was just it went from manic panic at a high level, and then just that dialogue with them, both before, during, and after, just felt and really calmed me down tremendously there, and so. You know, that that piece just allowed me to really just get grounded and really just take this position and get really comfortable. And it was the first time I had the chance to meet our entire board there on after. And so at the CBC, you know, they had set up a series of meetings with you know me to do one on ones with all of our board members. And the beautiful thing is, while the dialogue with one with us right outside, like the convention floor or, you know, the convention floor there, right in the, you know, the hallway spaces there. Mm-hmm. I'm connecting with everybody, but I'm getting to see our people. And while our, our conversation is important and, and cool, seeing how, like, as people are walking by, how you doing, Al? How you doing, T.O.? How you doing, Alisa? I mean, everybody was making it a point. Even though we were sitting and, you know, having a clearly a one-on-one conversation, everybody that was a part of that convention was reaching out to them. And you know, it was all 100% positive. And just to see how well received from all walks of life. I mean, there was the CEO of uh, Deschutes that mm-hmm. is talking to Marcus, you know, Marcus Baskerville, you know, as though they are buds there. And I'm like, holy smokes. I mean, it, it just reshifted the fact that it didn't matter. And it just reaffirmed that the brewing community is just such a pretty close-knit group and that our board members, our people are so well-respected and so well-loved that it, the hierarchy didn't matter that typically exists in corporate America, right? That hierarchy that exists, oh, you can't be talking to the CEO, no way, that's you know that's left, left for a handful of people. That wasn't the case at all. And so that was the biggest thing that I was able to take away as, wow, 
wow, why don't we have a bigger voice? Why don't we have a bigger presence? If literally everyone that I'm seeing interacting with our board members are loving them mm-hmm. and saying, hey, I've got this resource. Hey, I want to talk to you. It just kind of fueled my motivation to ensure that I do a solid and do you know my, my level best on bringing their vision to life. Um, you know, so that experience was remarkable for me. But once again, my wow. perspective, right? Yeah, it was so, so impactful. And I haven't shared this with anyone. I haven't shared it with Kevin Johnson or any of my other board members there. But, you know, while I was never uncertain that I wanted to do it, if it did anything, it galvanized me to a, a very high degree to really give it my level best to, you know, to see this thing be successful. Oh, fantastic. I love that. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to, we normally finish up on a positive note, and I think this will be a positive question, but it's going to be a hard question. And I think you're up for the challenge. Listeners can tell you have the gift of gab. You know what you're talking about. You know of what you speak. So I'm going to throw a fastball for you here. Um, I think, you know, what you just mentioned, it really piqued my interest because I think, you know, for a lot of, um, Oh, you know, well-meaning folks who maybe have a little bit more prejudice in their hearts than they thought they did type of thing. Something that comes to mind when you hear about like special interest organizations or, or a black, you know, business league, for example, is like, well, gosh, why do, why do they need that? We don't have a, a white brewers uh, association. You know, we don't. And look, you know, all of your members already fit in so well here and, and all of these. Uh, you know, they're able to interact with their peers. What What's the need for, you know, this association? Why Why be divisive? Why make it about race, quote unquote, right? That's a, I'm sure you've heard a critique like that before, if not about the Black Brewers Association, National Black Brewers Association, then certainly about, you know, other organizations like it or other conversations that are happening in, in American culture. Give the pitch or, or answer that question. Assume it's being posed in good faith, let's say, right? And it's not just some troll who's, who's saying it because they want to be racist and they they're just veiling Mm -hmm. it. Um, What's the good faith answer for why, you know, you know, the organization, you've been there for, you know, the building it out, you've seen how it interacts in the space. What is the good faith answer that you would give to why this is necessary to have, you know, for black brewers to have their own association for it to be a thing that can be called your own and can be built out your way. Give us the pitch. Yeah, it's a great, great, you know, Easter, Dave, and it's uh, it's not a fastball. It is a difficult dialogue, but it's a very <laughs> a curveball, I guess. I <laughs> consistent response there. You know, there's a systemic set of challenges that can be identified to as you know a group of black people, mm. and it may not be a set of challenges that you know someone that doesn't look like them will ever encounter or ever experience. But it exists, and it's very real. And you know, when you get a group of black people together you'll realize there's a common theme and then that common theme has common obstacles. And once again, it may not be realized by someone from outside of that group. Mm. And so that is the primary reason why this organization exists, right? That systemic issue, you know, whether it be barrier to entry into retail, barrier to entry to distribution, barrier to entry into ownership or barrier to entry to capital, the common themes exist more prevalently in this demographic. And so that's need number one. How do we mm-hmm. have an organization that can provide resources to knock down those obstacles and identify resources to make it available to our team? And then the second most important piece there on why something like this exists and why we need to be separate or different. No, we're not separate or different. Mm. Our challenges may be different, 
we're not separate in the fact that we are a part of a brewing community. You know, we are brewers, no different than anyone else that doesn't look like us. We're brewers. You know, we are drinkers of beer. We are lovers of beer. We are aficionados of this product and of this industry. But there are a limited amount of people and we're so spread out that we're creating a community of people that can come together, right? You know, it doesn't matter where you work for uh, uh, an Anheuser-Busch facility or a localized brewery, you know, it, like whether it's Souls in San Antonio that's black owned or, mm-hmm. you know, any other version of the black community. We're just bringing black people of all walks of life together. And it could be that you're in sales or in accounting or in operations mm-hmm. or production. It doesn't matter. We're just finding that there is a value to celebrate and recognize the black people in this organization. So that's far from being divisive. That is simply bringing us a a landing point and a place for us to kind of come together and realize we're not alone. You know, if there has been a common thread that there's a consistent message that's coming across, aside from some of the obstacles to ownership, it's just that I feel alone. I don't Mm. see a whole lot of people that look like me. And we're trying to make them very clear that you're not alone. There's a massive community of black people in all avenues of this business that, okay, let's help bring that community together, right? Mm. So celebrate what we're doing there and bringing it to life there. So once again, not meant to be divisive. You know, we're part of the bigger community and we have some unique challenges that we all try to try to figure out and overcome together. Well answered, sir. From the bud guy to the executive director of the National Black <laughs> Brewers Association formed in late 2022, uh, released to the world in May 2023. Kevin Asada, thank you for coming on Tap Lines. If listeners want to get involved, if maybe if they're black brewers themselves or they're in the, the beer industry uh, uh, and, and they want to get involved as a constituent or if they are not a black brewer or but they want to help in some other way, uh, how, you know, where do they find you? What do they do? No, please go to our website. You're exactly right, Dave. You know, we are an inclusive organization there. Anybody can be a member. Um, and you can go to our website, nb2a, just like the shirt says, nb2a.org. And you can look right on the top right corner where it says join now. You click on that button that says join now, follow the prompts and identify the level that you're participating in, whether you're a brewery or whether you're a large member and click on the, the uh, profile that represents you and then complete the purchase. And then you will be a part of our organization there. If at nothing else, you know, to realize some of the benefits, but if it, you know, it could also be just simply that you like the message and you want to support, you know, what we're trying to get accomplished there, that would be extremely helpful. So nb2a.org. Excellent. nb2a.org listeners. Yeah. You heard it. Go type it into your browser, hit the carriage return and check it out. Uh, Kevin Asada, thank you for going the distance with us here on Tap Lines, rehashing a little recent history, rehashing a little Kevin Asado history uh, as he took us through <laughs> your career. Thanks so much, my friend, for, for joining the show. You got it. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. Take care. Tap Lines is recorded in Richmond, Virginia, and produced by yours truly and Darby Seaside, who, along with the talented Shane Farrick, composed our delightful soundtrack. Just listen to it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the entire Vine Pair team, and especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.